Welcome to the Pinocchio Project. I'm your host, Mitch Friedman. Ideas have consequences, and every day you're exposed to ideas that promise human flourishing. Our mission here on the Pinocchio Project is to equip you to examine these everyday ideas so that you can determine for yourself whether or not they deliver on their promises. Welcome to the Pinocchio Project. This is your host, Mitch Friedman, joined by Jeff Olson. And this is going to be our final episode in season three. And also, I'm sorry, in season two, Jeff was all over me on that one, but I got it. I was right there with you, but I definitely need your assistance here to remind me of what reality looks like. This is the final episode of season two and the final episode of the Pinocchio Project in audio only beginning season three, which will drop on January the 9th, the first installment, we will have audio and video. So I get to uh, look at you and see what you look like. Oh, no, I won't see you, will I? You'll get to see me. That means I'll have to get quaffed every day and take, probably take a shower, at least every other day, and uh, be ready for the video. But, yeah, we're excited about uh, being uh, audio and video. So stand by for that. Thank you so much to those of you who have been uh, faithful Pinocchio Project consumers uh, low these many months. I think we started in, what, April of 2022? We started on April Fool's Day. How appropriate. And I've proven myself to be a fool many, many times on this podcast. And I appreciate you listening and always willing to take your feedback. And my primary goal is to be helpful in helping you build a grid in uh, how to examine everyday ideas that promise flourishing. Um, Run them through a biblical grid and uh, determine whether or not they can deliver on their promises or whether or not their nose is growing. And one of the beautiful things about, you don't mind if I wax off, I would just kind of go here, just like wax on, wax off with some specs on what's happening next. One of the great things I'm excited about in the, the video presentation is I can show you all the cool Pinocchio props I've been aggregating over the last few months. So uh, this very last episode, uh, which I'm recording the week before Thanksgiving, I've called Privilege and Ingratitude. Uh, if you've been around the block here uh, in your news feeds, your Twitter feeds, your social media feeds, your conversations around the water cooler, the uh, athletic fields, in the grocery store, uh, you, you have heard the word privilege being used in a lot of different terms. You've heard uh, white privilege. Uh, it goes along with uh, white fragility and excessive privilege and privilege that's not shared and privilege that's now uh, destructive. And uh, I'm going to try, try to draw a line between the connection of privilege and ingratitude. And you may say to me, Mitch, easy for you to say, you are a man of white privilege, so you don't have a voice. Uh, I beg your pardon. I do have a voice, and I think it's uh, properly aligned at the moment uh, to making some sense of these two uh, I would call attributes, privilege and ingratitude. Uh, a warped understanding of privilege will always lead to a life and a posture of ingratitude. So let's, uh, let's look at the definition of the word privilege. Uh, fun with words, ready? It pays to increase your word power. Privilege comes from the Latin privilegium, meaning a law for just one person, a benefit enjoyed by an individual or group beyond what is available to others. Any right, immunity, or benefit enjoyed only by a person 
or a group beyond the advantages of most. So that's what privilege means. So the first question we have to ask is, uh, how does privilege become the buzzword, or I would say the lightning rod for a lot of what's being called current cultural oppression, current uh, cultural division, uh, disunity, flashpoints of anger, and, and calls for, I would say, a reshaping, or maybe in the extreme, a deconstruction of every institution uh, historically that our country has known, and really a deconstruction of our history as well. Uh, the tearing down of monuments, of statues, the, the calls for uh, defunding uh, expressions of, of privileged tyranny. So uh, currently, our proper posture, we're being told, uh, if we're people of privilege, and that's, that's, that's going to be something I'll define uh, from the, the cultural influencers in a moment. Uh, if you're a person of privilege, uh, first of all, you have to kind of figure out if you are for me it, you know I'm told that it's easy for me uh, I am a I'm a white male evangelical uh, which is evidently not something I should aspire to I mean I should be actually uh, in this kind of posture first I should be apologetic and then I should be repentant I mean there's much I have to repent for I just watch my daily life um, but I'm not sure how to repent for this this classification uh, I should also be submissive and allow myself to be browbeaten and you know dragged through the streets. And then I should be possibly distributive. I should make reparations to someone or someones or some historical uh, tribe, family, uh, institution that was oppressed by me. And so I think we might have a, uh, I would say, histrionic or hysterical a framework for understanding our relationships uh, as we try to live together uh, in in this in this nation and maybe in the West in total, but it's really alive and well uh, in in the United States of America. So let let me look at the cultural mandate uh, from a current grad school roster of privileges, and maybe this will help you realize uh, whether or not you are a person of. Of, of privilege that should find themselves apologetic, repentant, submissive, or distributive. My, my proposition, again, is that, that these ideas of what it means to be privileged and try to live well with others uh, is actually a bad idea uh, when, it, when it comes to being successful in my daily life in a community of uh, diverse individuals, image bearers from all kinds of places, uh, with uh, with all kinds of thoughts on what flourishing looks like. Uh, so here is from a recent grad school report, a graduate school. This is, you know, the, the academy, uh, which is where a lot of these ideas take shape and then are moved downstream towards behaviors. Uh, this, this, is, this is actually from a paper out of a grad school by a professor that's uh, involved in such studies. A categories of privilege, here's how it works, colon. Basically, there are a lot of different dimensions by which privilege can be measured. Currently, there are seven dimensions by which privilege, privilege can be measured. And the thing is, just like our uh, study of the PFLAG glossary, uh, they give us the seven, but then they realize they need to talk more. Uh, so the first, the first level of privilege, the first measure, is sex. 
male versus female. Evidently, if you're male, then you're in the privileged position. Now, interestingly, they say nothing uh, right away about gender. They realize they have to later. Next is race, white versus any racial minority. Age, the prime of adulthood versus children or elderly people. So the one I say first under each category is assumed to be the privileged party. So male, white, prime of adulthood. Religion is the next category. Protestant versus any other religion or lack of religion. So am I going to do this every time? I've already gotten myself into this condition, haven't I? Male, white, prime of adulthood, Protestant, and now sexual orientation, straight versus gay or bisexual. So I'm not going to go through it all again. Let's just add straight to the previous uh, privileged characteristics. Next is ability status, able-bodied versus disabled. Next is socioeconomic status, middle class or higher versus those who live in poverty. And now this prof says, uh, after they give us the seven, so let me give you the seven. A male, a white male, a white male in the prime of adulthood, a white male in the prime of adulthood who is Protestant and straight and able-bodied, that's all seven. And then, oops, I need more words. I need more definitions written by the prof. Although as I've grown and learned and increased my awareness, I've found that there are so many more kinds of privilege than that. Here are a few, though this list is far from exhaustive. I beg to differ, Jeff. I'm getting exhausted just going through this, trying to figure out who I am and what I'm owed or what I owe. The next is gender, cisgender versus transgender or non-binary gendered. And in, in parens, if these terms are confusing to you, please see my article on Transgender 101. The next is relationship orientation. Traditional, in scare quotes, versus polyamorous or kinky. Is that a technical term? Well, I see that in the reference book, required reading for the course. The next, Jeff, is body type. Thin or fit. Versus overweight or curvy. You know, I'm going to have to read through all of these now to get the, the profile of the ultimately privileged person. Legal status. United States citizen versus those who are not. The next category of these add-ons, these amendments, is language ability. English-speaking people versus those who are not fluent in English. <laughs> I'm sorry. I finally found one that I can say proudly that I am in the non-privileged status. Accent. Standard American accent versus Southern or other regional accents. I say this because I'm a Southern boy, but do I talk like a Southern boy? And if so, does that mean somebody owes me an apology who has a standard, whatever that is, American accent? Should they be repentant toward me? Should they? Should they be submissive as they approach me? Should they distribute something to me like voice lessons, diction? I think I've wandered off the reservation here. So according to the current cultural mandate, I am to determine whether or not I'm privileged. 
by these characteristics. And since I am a white male, I'm a little older than the prime of adulthood, but I'm still feisty. And I'm a Protestant, and I'm straight, and I'm able-bodied, and I'm middle class or higher, and I'm also a cisgender, which if you don't know what cisgender means, it actually just refers back to the creation order, male and female, both biologically and understood as distinctive as gender. I'm a cisgender. Do I have to start over with all those since I went into a description? I am a traditional, meaning I've been married for 35 years. I'm privileged to have my wife, that's for sure. I am thin or fit by most definitions. And I'm a United States citizen. I'm English speaking. And then here comes the one variable. I'm a Southern boy, but I probably speak more like a standard American. So gosh, I think that I need to maintain a posture of apology, of repentance, of submission, and distribution. There's two failings here in my way of thinking, at least two, for the purposes of our episode today in these descriptions. But they are not failings according to the current way we separate from each other and divide from each other. At least two failings here is the first of all, that we haven't really delved completely into the full-orbed understanding of identity politics or what I would call intersectionality. It's not fully formed because even within these relationships, there are other derivations and other alternatives that can be named. And as we looked at in our last episode, there's no possible limit to the imagination of how oppressed I might be based on characteristics that I can assume. So two failings here is much too broad. There's much more work to do here in identifying people of privilege versus people who are oppressed. And that really is a failing in itself uh, because these categories are couched as, as adversarial. It's me versus these other characteristics. And I just want to say plainly, I do not consider myself against anyone. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, I understand, first of all, that we are all, in reality, image bearers of God. And the second reality is that we are all in Adam, our father. So we are all prone to act out in self-protection, self-promotion, self-indulgence, and assuming and assuring my agenda will succeed over all others. So there is no adversarial relationship in all of humanity. We are all image bearers who are in Adam. And if you've said yes to Jesus Christ and his redeeming, transforming work, you are now someone who is being restored uh, from now being in Adam to being in Christ. So the two failings here is they don't do enough work, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, in in intersectionality, which means if I can claim as many oppressed characteristics as possible, that means you owe me more. And not tongue-in-cheek, it violates the understanding and the biblical framework of that we are all in the same boat together. First in Adam, as image bearers, and now with the opportunity to be not any longer in Adam, but in Christ. I want to close today. I think I've let you guys know that uh, guys and gals. Oops, I don't want to. I don't want to be privileged. The guys is editorial, meaning it's all of us. So I've let you guys know that uh, I'm a real fan of Carl Truman lately, like for the past two or three years. 
Uh, I'm a fanboy. He does a great job analyzing technically, anecdotally, and even devotionally uh, the times we live in. And he he discussed in the First Things magazine, which I think I've recommended to you as well, and I continue to recommend First Things, Touchstone, uh, great reads for you people who like the stuff of the Pinocchio Project. It would be right up your uh, alley in your wheelhouse too here. Uh, so in uh, the latest edition of First Things, uh, an article that he wrote, Carl wrote on November 10th, uh, I'm just going to read it through and, and see see what you have to think about this. Uh, remember that the, the episode title is Privilege and Ingratitude. Carl writes, In the times of turmoil in which we live, various influencers suggest themselves as ways of capturing the essence of our time. This is the age of anxiety, or this is the age of identity politics, this is the age of polarization. All touch on some obvious aspect of our current struggles. But perhaps a better title might be The Age of Ingratitude. This captures a deep but often unnoticed pathology of our troubled era. Take, for example, the books, blogs, and tweets devoted to being unthankful for anything and everything. We might dub this the ingratitude industry not only because of the sheer quantity of ungratefulness, but also because of the lucrative careers that are being made by selling ingratitude as a commodity. Strange to tell, Christianity, a religion which is predicated on divine grace and corresponding human gratitude, offers numerous examples. Many a career has been made in recent years by attacking the churches and institutions of, quote, white evangelicalism. And many such careers belong to those of whom we would never have heard if they had not obtained their degrees or platforms from the very white evangelicalism that forms the raw material of the commodified ingratitude they now sell to the public as prophetic utterances. There's a lot of richness there. Carl continues, But the ingratitude industry is not confined to erstwhile religious types. As an immigrant, I love my homeland, but I also love the land that has given me a home. It seems to me odd, therefore, that so many Americans are obviously and vocally ungrateful for their country. Odd, too, that so many of these anti-American Americans want to throw the borders open, not, as one might expect from their rhetoric, to allow those of us trapped in such an apparently irredeemable and systematically racist country to escape but to let others enter the same. Others who, it seems, would rather be grateful for the opportunities for which many Americans have such contempt. Ingratitude in such circumstances is not merely ugly, it is incoherent. But so it is always with those who insist on biting the hand that feeds them. The fate of the language of privilege is also significant here. Privilege now is a bad thing, a very bad thing, something for which one is supposed to feel guilty and for which one is expected to, to do perpetual public penance. And then Carl says, I love this, I, for one, refuse to oblige. Yes, I am privileged. Oh, and here's kind of a new understanding of what it means to be privileged. One that's not listed in the grad prof's roster. Carl says, yes, I am privileged. 
I grew up in a home where my mother and father loved each other, stayed together through thick and thin, and provided my sisters and myself with opportunities that had been denied to them because of their own working-class upbringing. Most obviously, the opportunity to study at college. Mine was thus a privileged childhood. But my mother and father did not build their marriage and family at the cost of somebody else. See, it wasn't, this is me, this is Mitch. What he's saying is this wasn't an adversarial, someone took advantage of somebody else based on some identity politics that roots automatic and undeserved privilege. My mother and father did not build their marriage and family at the cost of those of somebody else. They worked hard to love each other and to provide a loving home. I was the recipient of privilege, but the appropriate response to such privilege is not to feel guilty. It is to feel gratitude. To do otherwise would be to sin against my parents. Carl closes, I suspect the same applies to many others. Are there abusive pastors, corrupt institutions, and evil parents out there? For sure. But many are not so. And most of us, if not all, have been the beneficiaries of countless acts of quiet kindness and patience from Christian pastors and organizations and friends. But gratitude for the many fine and kind Christian people, loving parents, and generous institutions out there doesn't sell books or attract page views. It doesn't build platforms, as does the confected anger of both political extremes. And so we express little gratitude for these hidden lives. Lives, I suspect, that are far more typical of reality than the simplistic blanket categories used in the sales pitches of the ingratitude industry. Carl closes with, We live in an age marked by infantile ingratitude which means we may be living in an age where we do not really know how to live at all. Our ingratitude is threatening to dehumanize us. So as I close this uh, few days before Thanksgiving, uh, the biblical text says that we are to be thankful in all circumstances as followers of Christ. Uh, I would offer the groundwork or the foundation or the headwaters of our gratitude in all circumstances, regardless of our identities, our politics, or how we feel we may or may not have been oppressed. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been given the ultimate privilege, and that is to see your sin hurled to the deepest depths of the sea and removed as far as the east is from the west, and this nothing of our own doing. It is the gracious, loving, divine kindness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the proper posture of privilege. Gratitude. For the Pinocchio Project, Mitch Friedman, signing off. Thanks so much for being with us on the Pinocchio Project today. If this podcast has value for you, please subscribe or follow. Give us a five-star rating and share. If you have an everyday idea you'd like to submit for us to examine, simply email us at pinocchioprojectpod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at pinocchiopod, or you can hit the links in the show notes below. Thanks again for listening, and remember, your everyday ideas have significant consequences. <laughs>